Welcome to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month to learn about economic democracy and cooperative business. The Co-op Power Hour is a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle, which you can learn more about on our website, coloradocoops.info. I'm a member of the Media Studies Department at the University of Colorado Boulder. Today we're talking about strategies for community-controlled housing. We're joined by two remarkable guests, Karin Hoskin, Executive Director of the Co-Housing Association of the United States, and a Boulder resident who lives in one of our area's several co-housing communities, and Paul Bradley, President of Rock USA, which stands for Resident-Owned Communities, and a recent inductee in the Cooperative Hall of Fame for his work enabling residents of manufactured home communities to be owners of the land under their homes. We live in a time when housing is a defining asset. It's the main source of wealth for many people, but it's also the cause of the major defining economic crisis of our era. Especially here in Colorado, housing costs have risen far faster than most people's incomes. People have been turning to cooperative models as a way to turn the tide, or even to survive. In January 2017, the Boulder City Council passed a new housing co-op ordinance, which we've covered on this show before, that makes housing cooperatives easier to form. But those kinds of cooperatives that the uh, ordinance allowed are, you know, kind of like the first cooperative I was ever a member of uh, uh, when I was in college, a packed house, a bunch of people living together, sharing, uh, 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 filling a house as much as they can. Uh, and as important as that kind of model is, it's not necessarily a situation that would work well for everybody. Uh, in the years since I lived in that house, for instance, uh, I've helped build a family. And uh, as our family is growing, that kind of model doesn't work for us the way it did uh, years ago. So today we're looking at other models. We're looking at uh, ways to see how uh, forms of shared ownership and community housing can be flexible, how they can be adaptive to different kinds of life situations, different kinds of needs, and uh, make housing uh, accessible to people uh, who might otherwise uh, not think of themselves as, uh, as potential homeowners. To get this conversation started, we'll uh, uh, turn to Karen Hoskin, uh, Executive Director of the Co-Housing Association of the United States. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us just to get going, what is co-housing? What does that term mean? Sure. What's under that umbrella? Sure. Um, so I, I actually heard this really great quote the other day, and it was, co-housing allows us the privacy that we're accustomed to and the community that we seek. And I thought that was really, that was really an amazing way to think about it. So co-housing has these uh, general characteristics. They tend to be um, homes, whether they're single family homes or condominium townhome style or apartments or a combination of. So everybody has their own individual house with a kitchen and bathrooms and bedrooms, just like kind of standard suburbia. But they're clustered together around a shared space. And the shared space is kind of the key to the 
uh, community relationship aspect of it. So there's shared outdoor space as far as gardens or open green areas, and then shared space as uh, a building, um, like a clubhouse, but we call it a really fancy clubhouse, and we actually call it a common house. So it is the common house for whoever lives in that community. And it typically has a large industrial kitchen, a large dining room that can seat many, if not all of the people in the community, uh, some guest rooms, playroom, and it's, and it's really an extension of our homes. Great. And how did this model develop? Where did it come from? Mm. Is it Did it just appear out of nowhere? Did it emerge out <laughs> of a particular moment? Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting because some form of intentional community has existed for a long, long time. Um, how I think about it is intentional community, the term intentional community is the umbrella. And so underneath intentional community are things like income sharing communes um, or what people think of from the 60s or 70s which are absolutely thriving for people today Um, co-ops co-living co-housing shared housing there's all kinds of new terms that are up and coming these days and all of those have kind of their own definitions if you will or or common characteristics and those nestle underneath so co-housing itself may have existed in some form for a long time, but the Co-Housing Association of the U.S. kind of identifies it as coming from uh, like the Denmark area of the world, where co-housing is a very, very common way for people to live. And there were two architects, um, Katie McCammett and Chuck Durrett, who were doing their uh, continued studies while in Denmark and realized as they were kind of walking through the villages, wow, what's what's kind of happening over there? Did a little more investigation and then brought, brought the concept back to the U.S. And again, it may have already existed in some form, um, but they were absolutely founders in bringing it to more of the common world, I guess you would say. And so you live in a co-housing community here in Boulder. I do. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in it, what piqued your interest, and what life is like there? Sure. It's awesome, can I just say? (laughs) So um, I first became familiar with it when um, I had a business partner who lived in a co-housing community that's about 20 minutes away. And... um, our business was run out of her home office. And so in my daily interactions, I would go over to the to her community and walk past the common house. And, and so it was very organically introduced to me. And when my husband and I were looking for a place to live, when, um, when we were about to start a family, we looked there. And um, it was little expensive for us at the time, but we decided we would try and stretch it, but there wasn't anything available. And then we realized that actually we wanted to be more in town here. Uh, so we, uh, to be honest, we kind of gave up on it because there's another, at the time there was one existing co-housing community here in Boulder, but it's very small and they have very little to- turnover. So we kind of gave up. And then our realtor friend called us one day and said, oh my gosh, a unit came up in a community that's being built. And we signed up. So that was, let's see, we've been in the community for 14 years, and that was new construction at the time. 
So our children have grown up there. We have a son who's 16 and a daughter who's 14. She was actually born in the community. So our kids have have grown up there. And I think that a, a couple of things that have been really amazing living there, one is raising our kids. It really is that village aspect of it. So if one of our kids was sick and I needed cough medicine in the middle of the night or um, just needed to complain to somebody about my three-year-old tantrums happening or 16-year-old tantrums happening, um, there was that community of other parents. Um, But not just parents and families live there. There's also, uh, we have, I think our oldest community member is 85, all the way down to a nine-month-old baby. So they have lots of, quote-unquote, aunties and uncles in the community, which, again, raising kids these days, sure is nice to have those extra eyes on them anywhere in town. (laughs) So that's been really fantastic. Um, Daily life just simply looks like I really know my neighbors. So there's 34 households in Wild Sage. There are 91 people. We just counted the other day. 30 of those are kids. Um, And again, anywhere from babies to high school students. Um, And I know all of my neighbors. I know everybody's name. Um, I often, for the most part, know what they do for a living or what their interests are. We do some activities together. We have community meals once a week together. Uh, We do a a community happy hour once a week. Uh, We often celebrate um, holidays or, you know, uh, Memorial Day barbecues and things like that. Um, So it's kind of like a large, sometimes dysfunctional, but functional extended family or a small town like Mayberry. And so what kinds of models can these encompass? What does this look like legally? What does it look like in terms of ownership? Mm-hmm. You know, who's in control of that shared uh, yeah. house, yeah. right? How, how, do, how do these work? Do they vary or are they mostly similar? So typically what happens when a group comes together and wants to create a community, they uh, come together and kind of figure out what it is they want. Then they legally form an LLC, And everybody or whoever can, it looks different in different situations, kind of puts money in the pot, so to speak. And then they go through the process of hiring an architect and a developer and often a co-housing consultant to kind of help guide them through the process. Because it's not, you're not just simply building a little pocket neighborhood with some houses. It really is community and relationships. So you have to figure out how to communicate and you have to figure out how to get along. And if you're not getting along, how do you not get along that's still healthy for everybody? Um, So it starts off as an LLC. And then once construction is actually complete, legally, it's transferred into a condo or an homeowners association. The one I live in, they're townhomes. So we're a condo association. But it's, again, legally, it's some sort of homeowners association. Now, the big difference is of the HOA in co-housing, we are self-managed. We are our own HOA. We're it. We're the board of directors. When we're talking about creating co-housing and affordability, which is a very hot topic in the co-housing world, um, that is absolutely one of the ways to do that, to create that. Another way that um, 
that affordability can happen is to do some sort of retrofit. Uh, so, for example, in Denver here, an old church convent, um, the, the, the physical main building of the convent was uh, purchased by a group and turned into a bunch of apartments with a shared space within it. And so while they certainly had the remodel um, expenses, they didn't have to buy land and run water and electricity and and do that sort of thing and create zoning. That had already been in place. So in the end, that project saved some money, which can then, that savings can be passed on to the purchasers of the units. Well, let's talk more about affordability, because that's such an important question for yeah. so many people. How does this kind of model make homeownership um, and community more accessible to people. Yeah, there is this, um, I, I would say, a kind of a general misconception that co-housing is only, only for people that are fairly affluent. Um, I would disagree with that. Um, I think that I, I understand where it's coming from, and it's coming from not only are you purchasing your own house, but you're also paying for the common element, of the common house. You're paying for 134th of a 5,000 square foot building or something like that. So I, I do understand that when it comes right down to the math, that's not necessarily true. Um, but even without doing the literal math equations, there are plenty of other ways that, that kind of you know, organically affordability happens. So for instance, things like in our community, we have one lawnmower. One, because not everybody needs their own lawnmower, so we just share it. We um, There are quite a few families that do car sharing because you don't always need two cars in your family, but sometimes you do, and so there are some families that do car sharing. There are some families that share uh, pop-up campers. Uh, there are people that share bicycles, or if they need a bike for a couple of months because they have a family member visiting or something like that, if somebody just puts out an email to the community saying, hey, I need a bike. Does anybody have one? <laughs> um, things like food co-ops and food shares, uh, babysitting exchanges for kids. We definitely had, um, when my kids were younger, I did an exchange with a couple of other families so that some of us worked some part-time hours, but the part-time work didn't pay enough for a nanny or daycare. So we would just exchange kids, which meant then, you know, we had a house full, but then we also had moments where we didn't have any. <laughs> so I think that there's a lot of things that make life more affordable as far as sharing resources that happen really easily in co-housing because I know all my neighbors. So it's easy for me and comfortable for me to ask for something. And as an association now, as a national association, mm -hmm. are there a couple of priorities that you're really focusing on? Yeah, uh, affordability, as I said. A very hot topic is affordability and how... Um, you know, just kind of looking at some more unique models, uh, for example, the one that we're going to talk about uh, in this same uh, interview here is a fantastic concept, um, or some other unique models like perhaps um, somebody who, maybe there's somebody who 
owns multiple houses um, and runs it kind of like as a rental. But again, the concept is really running it as a community so that the community relationships are there, although maybe somebody doesn't literally own their own house. So the association is very much open to looking at other models and other ways, um, or simply, not or, and, <laughs> um, looking at streamlining the uh, the way that you create a co-housing community. Because if you can streamline the pieces of it, you can save money creating it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Now, we'll be coming back to Karin a little later in the show. Uh, you're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. Uh, we're talking today about uh, shared uh, housing models and and uh, uh, new forms of community that uh, that cooperative and other s- sorts of uh, ownership structures can enable. We'll be back in just a bit. Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider. I teach media studies at CU Boulder. Uh, Really glad to be with you. Today, we're talking about uh, different models of uh, shared and community housing, uh, ways that co-ownership and community models can enable people to uh, live better, more affordably, and uh, more securely. I'm uh, really uh, uh, excited to have uh, an out-of-town guest with us today, Paul Bradley from Rock USA. Um, it is a really innovative organization that helps uh, manufactured home communities uh, uh, gain co-ownership. And uh, first of all, I just want to congratulate Paul on his uh, induction into the Cooperative Hall of Fame. Um, I've, I'm, uh, I've had the opportunity to see the wall itself in the National Cooperative Business Association uh, office in Washington, D.C., and uh, there are some really amazing people on that wall, and, and it's uh, uh, fitting that you're, uh, that you're there now, too. So congratulations. Thank you, Nathan. Probably premature, but nonetheless happy to be there, and thank you for having me up. Absolutely. Now tell us, uh, let's start with the basics. Uh, tell us a bit about what Rock is and does, and uh, uh, you know what where it came from. Sure. So Rock USA stands for Resident-Owned Communities, and we're based in Concord, New Hampshire. But we're a national nonprofit social venture that is seeking to scale cooperative ownership of manufactured or mobile home communities. Uh, we're active in th- 15 states with co-ops today, and are ultimately aiming to make resident ownership or cooperative ownership of communities viable in all 49 states where manufactured housing communities exist. Great. And tell us about how this model came to be. When did it uh, arise as something that seemed like an opportunity? You bet. Well, in uh, the summer of 1983, uh, a graduate student who had a, a friend who had a brother that lived in a mobile home park in Meredith, New Hampshire, arrived at a class uh, with Professor Michael Swack, and she laid out this problem that she had heard from her friend, that her brother's mobile home park was being uh, sold. Uh, The elderly couple that owned it uh, needed to uh, 
uh, sell its uh, their asset because he was moving into a nursing home, and the um, woman was going to retain stay in the community, uh, and so individual homeowners one by one went down to a local bank to try to buy this 13 unit mobile home park, and. Each time they were told, no, uh, you don't have the equity, you don't have the experience, there's no possible way you can buy the community. And so Rebecca Story came to class and Michael Swack said, well, why don't they buy it as a co-op? They can form a co-op, they can buy the land, and uh, there's a startup community loan fund, uh, what today is called a community development financial institution, but an old-style community loan fund starting up in Concord, New Hampshire, and they could borrow the money from them to buy the land. And so that's exactly how it went down the summer of 1984. Uh, the Meredith Center Cooperative purchased the community for $38,000. The community loan fund borrowed $38,000 from the Sisters of Mercy in the morning and turned around and re-loaned it to the co-op in the afternoon. And they became the first resident-owned community in New Hampshire. Um, and it was done as a one-off. Uh, Julie Eads, the founding president of the community loan fund, uh, thought it was a great project, great people, happy to help, uh, but was on to financing nonprofit child care centers and food co-ops and other, other things that they had imagined when the phone started to ring off the hook. And it turns out there was just this um, underlying, unknown, significant problem uh, for these group of low-income homeowners. Um, you know, our, our community was just sold. The rents went up by $50. What can we do? Uh, the septic systems in the backyards are failed. Uh, the community owner won't fix them. What can we do? We just got a notice that our community is being closed down. We have to be uh, out in six months. What can we do? And it led to um, just an awakening, a real understanding that there was a significant problem here um, and uh, began the work of really a sectoral program to really focus in on this sector of housing. Now, tell us a little bit about what co-ownership of these communities can do to transform them or to enable them enable residents to have a more secure life what what does ownership change well first off just structurally what what uh, ownership looks like in this sector you know these are homeowners to start with uh, they own a home and they rent a lot from a third-party commercial investor um, and by forming a corporation a democratically controlled cooperative they are buying the land um, and it's on the one member, one share, one vote rule as all co-ops operate. But they, uh, they retain ownership of their home just as they had it prior to, but now they have a share in the corporation that owns the land. And that gives them control over the budget, gives them control over uh, who's, uh, the governance, who's running the community uh, in terms of electing a board of directors. And of course, the members retain control over the big issues you know, the bylaws and uh, the budget and the capital improvements, et cetera. So um, uh, co-op ownership in the manufactured housing community sector means two th things on both levels. On the economic level, it's a very significant step forward in terms of economic security. So gaining control over the, the lot rent or the site fee that the corporation that owns the land is charging the homeowners is... Uh, uh, first and foremost, uh, most homeowners are deeply concerned about the affordability and the skyrocketing rents. And so getting control of that and eliminating or removing the profit margin uh, has been um, is a chief motivator. Um, 
the uh, control over the capital improvements, another significant um, uh, motivator, uh, motivation for homeowners. And then the long-term security, just taking that property and removing it from the speculative real estate market where it's exposed to the risk of being closed down um, and, uh, and preserving it long-term very significant structural economic. And then on the social side, um, there's a, a very significant shift that occurs. Um, so homeowners that will report, yeah, we've lived here for a long time. We, we you know, don't really know anybody in the neighborhood. We come home and, and uh, uh, then through the co-op organizing experience, uh, they get to know everybody in the neighborhood. And so it moves from really a, what one can look at as a dysfunctional neighborhood when people are disconnected in neighborhood that's when significant problems arise when people know each other and are connected there may be um, disagreements but nonetheless people are engaged with one another and they know who to go to and talk to if there's an issue Um, and they wave to each other you know is one thing people will say when uh, they go through the co-op organizing um, experience and literally in this case they're going into business together uh, they're forming a corporation to buy a commercial asset and they're in business with their neighbors um, and um, and that significantly changes how they view the world so a Freedom Hill Cooperative in Loudon, New Hampshire I, I remember the moment when they recognized that they just became the third largest taxpayer in the town of Loudon. And for a group of homeowners in a housing stock that's largely looked down upon, uh, and this is true across the country, uh, the stigma associated with this housing stock is a significant problem. Uh, But when they recognized that they were the third highest taxpayers, you could see them sit up straighter, and um, uh, they reported calling the town manager to sit down with the town manager, and he happily had them into his office. And uh, just the sense of empowerment and the sense of, uh, you know, we are... Um, uh, a significant uh, population in this community. Uh, it was, it's, it's, you know, uh, noteworthy. And what's the scale of this model right now? How widespread is it around the country? As a, you know, as a share of the of the opportunity, for instance. Well, still very small. I mean, we're today 221 co-ops in 15 states, uh, home to just over 14,000 homeowners. Um, We've essentially, in the last, well, just in terms of growth, uh, we've added uh, 15 to 17 new co-ops a year for the last three or four years. Um, Last year, uh, 1,350 homeowners that became co-op members. Um, And so, you know, our our 10-year goal is to be a a network of 500 co-ops and 30,000 plus homeowners. Um, and uh, that that's the basis of our strategic planning. Fantastic. And what lessons have you learned in uh, trying to achieve greater scale? And, and as you've had a lot of practice, I mean, you say the scale is small, but that's a few hundred communities is a lot. Uh, so what, what, what have you learned? What have you been uh, 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 changing as you go, as you're uh, helping these uh, co-ops to form? Yeah, so, you know, we started Rock USA 10 years ago. Uh, with the explicit uh, objective of scaling resident ownership based on this New Hampshire model of limited equity cooperative ownership. So initially, you know, the proof of concept stage was pretty significant. There were people, you know, in and around the country who said, well, this is a New England thing, you know, this must be some Yankee invention and this isn't going to work in Texas or Montana or where have you. So uh, it turns out that homeowners in every state we've entered 
um, have a strong interest in buying the land when they're provided a viable opportunity. So every chance that we, every opportunity that we put in front of homeowners to purchase their communities, uh, nine out of 10 of those community groups say, yes, we want to purchase the community. Um, and, uh, and so resident or homeowner interest is very strong no matter where we go. Um, the significant uh, challenge that we uh, experience in states is simply sellers or community owners. Uh, under, you know, first of all, um, even knowing that resident ownership is a possibility. And then two, the confidence that uh, the low-income people that they've been renting land to for many years, their customers, have the capacity to uh, purchase the property. And a lot of times it's, it's the financial capacity. They can't imagine how this group of low-income homeowners could possibly come up with five or $10 million to purchase a commercial asset. Um, and, uh, and I understand, I mean, it's very non very unconventional. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, we help low-income people act like deep pocketed investors and, uh, position them. If it's a good transaction if it's if everybody agrees this is a strong uh, opportunity um you know we we make that capital available so they can they can make the purchase but overcoming seller resistance is our number one uh challenge um and then you know we come in we are very active in industry and we meet community operators who have long had the idea that they'd like to sell to the homeowners uh, there's consolidation happening in this business, like so many U.S. sectors, business sectors, um, and there are a lot of local developer owners that are now, you know, some of them getting up in age, and they would rather sell to the homeowners and keep that property locally owned than selling to a consolidator out of Chicago or out of Northern California or where have you, um, and uh, they know that then the f- the folks that they run into in the grocery store or at church. Um, they've done they've done the best they can do to set them up for a future of security and success. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that pressure being there. Um, and uh, I, you, you're here in Colorado. Uh, I gather you're beginning to operate here. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what that looks like? What the opportunity looks like in Colorado, and you know how people can learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, so we've affiliated with a local nonprofit, uh, Thistle Communities, here in Boulder. Uh, we operate as a, a national social venture with two parts of the organization uh, a network of uh, local and regional nonprofits that provide really boots on the ground training and education, as well as uh, market development to create opportunities for homeowners. Um, and so we've affiliated with Thistle here in Colorado, who's just beginning to look at transactions. They actually have uh, three communities in negotiation and uh, two communities um, that, uh, uh, in addition, uh, will be under contract here very uh, shortly, like uh, today or tomorrow or Monday. So um, there's real progress in terms of the market development. And in fact, it's truth be, truth be told, they're local owners. Um, uh, who really uh, got excited about the idea of preserving their communities long-term and doing something to help the homeowners. Um, they're accepting, trust me, uh, fair market value. There's no, this is a, this is a commercial business deal on the, from the seller's perspective. Um, and it's our job to equip the homeowners with what they need to meet the market where it's at. But uh, I don't need to tell uh, your audience, but there's a substantial affordable housing crisis in this state and communities are threatened. You've got a 
significant community being closed down at present, uh, Denver Meadows. Um, so you're seeing firsthand the risks homeowners face when they don't own the land. Um, and uh, it's really therefore up to the public and uh, nonprofit sector and homeowners themselves to really step up and figure out a way to, in a hot market like this, how to preserve and improve communities um, because they will disappear and there's no place uh, nearly as affordable as these communities uh, for these folks to go. Uh-huh. And how do you can, how have you turned this into a kind of viable business deal, right? A market rate kind of uh, approach. I, th- I can imagine a lot of people, uh, you know, you go to a n- normal bank, you propose this idea, what you, you get a kind of look of consternation, right? Uh, uh, for somebody who hasn't heard about this, mm-hmm. uh, what uh, partners have you had to find in order to finance these deals to make this a viable opportunity? Yeah, so that's great. So I explained one half of the um, social venture is our network of trainers and educators, uh, of which Thistle is one of nine currently. Uh, the other half of the organization is a community development financial institution, a CDFI certified by the Department of Treasury. And it is that um, community loan fund, if you will, that has uh you know, raised equity and debt from uh, both philanthropy foundations as well as banks in order to have a significant uh, amount now of roughly $40 million of, of uh, liquidity to hold subordinate positions in project loans so that we can attract private capital, but we bring first loss um, debt, what otherwise looks like equity though to the to the senior lenders. So the senior lenders that we also bring to these transactions include uh, the National Co-op Bank, uh, MetLife, uh, an insurance company example, Prudential is is active with us. We also work with uh, regional banks um, and we work very closely with state housing finance authorities as well as other CDFIs to package the financing necessary to make each transaction work. Um, And uh, and each, well, each behind the scenes, you know, is each financing package is, uh, you know, looks different uh, to the co-ops. They look like a single loan from Rock USA Capital, our CDFI, um, and it makes, you know, uh, makes that really easy. And because we largely, um, uh, because we have a large line of credit with Bank of America, we're able to actually close on the transaction on commercial timeframes. So very efficiently from the seller's perspective and from the buyer's perspective. And then we're, we're behind the scenes working with community development motivated lenders like the National Co-op Bank to structure the financing and, and um, you know, leverage the loan because we're, we're relatively small at $40 million. Um, so we need to participate with a lot of other lenders to, make, uh, to really make this go. Great. Now, how do you see the next... Uh, 10 years of the organization shaping up how do you what do you think are the next stages for enabling this model to scale even further yeah so it's i think about scale in two two ways right we scale deep within existing states so there's a significant amount of market development and systems development work needed here in colorado and our other states so scale deep but also scale wider so uh, our expectation is to be in 25 states uh you know certainly by another 10 years uh um, and those were with, with co-ops in 25 states. Um, so scale wide at the same time as scaling deep. Um, the other way um, 
the other way to uh, the other strategic priority, Nathan, that I would just really raise up is uh, we made a very pivotal decision in our current strategic plan, which was, and it's it uh, would strike some people as uh, as curious if you were to read our strategic plan. Uh, but it is our, our first objective is to raise uh, homeowner and co-op leader voice. Um, we made the decision that this is a stronger um, a sector if this is homeowner-led as opposed to a nonprofit-led strategy. Because it's not, it's not what we think is right for community. It's actually what homeowners themselves think is right for their community. So in our organizing process, it's not us bringing uh bringing a closed transaction to a group of homeowners the homeowners go through the purchase process get all of the due diligence and make their own decision whether to purchase or not and it's night and day um as opposed to a nonprofit putting uh, affordable housing on people versus people uh homeowners themselves engaged in the process of buying their property uh, and the empowerment that results from that and if you think about that level that empowerment at a single community level now start to think about it as a national network that's that's co-op leader led and the potential of this to really build a strong consumer-centered uh, national network that's what we're after fantastic and and there's been some involvement in the leadership of the organization among yeah. residents right I've yeah heard a conversation with some of those residents and and uh, uh, it's fantastic to hear those perspectives but tell us about how that's shaped your organization well we um, we actually uh, rock USA is a an LLC we're actually owned by nonprofits um, but we're also owned by the communities that own uh, that um, are members of our network so the rock Association is an LLC member of rock USA our communities elect three co-op leaders to serve on the national board. And so I am uh, personally accountable to the communities themselves. And trust me, if those three community leaders show up at a board meeting and say, Bradley has to go, um, you know, my walking papers won't be far behind. So, um, you know, very important to have that, that level of accountability to community. Because at the end of the day, we're only as strong as, as the communities that we work with. And, um, and if we're not providing a strong value proposition to communities, then this will not scale, this won't grow. Um, and I firmly believe it has to. I think homeowners need control of the land under their homes, and so we need to do the best job we can to keep this organization, you know, strongly connected to the communities that it serves. Thank you. Yeah. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature in KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. Uh, today we're talking about uh, shared ownership and community-based housing, uh, and uh, we'll be back in just a bit. Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at uh, CU Boulder, and uh, uh, today we're talking about uh, different models for shared ownership and uh, community-based housing. I'm here with uh, Karen Hoskin, executive director of the Co-Housing Association of the United States and a uh, a resident of a Boulder uh, co-housing community, uh, and Paul Bradley, president of Rock USA, which stands for Resident-Owned Communities, uh, which is an organization that helps manufactured home communities uh, buy the land uh, under their homes. 
Now, for both of you, we've been talking about all the wonderful things that you're doing and uh, what you've been achieving around the country. Um, but I wonder if we could turn to uh, some of the challenges that you've also alluded to. I'd love to hear from each of you about what keeps you up at night. What uh, is the thing that uh, 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 you know makes it hardest to do the work that you're doing and and uh, help create affordable, accessible uh, housing for uh, people around the country? Sure. Um, I would say that one of one of my challenges is uh, just trying to kind of clear up some of the misconceptions. And I think that uh, the folks that I represent, the organization I work for, and the people who live in co-housing, and and um, Paul's folks, I, I think it's, the, the points might be different, that there's a similarity too. So, for example, there was a news article in um, a national publication, and the, the headline was something something uh, talking about co-housing. It's not just a hippie commune. And first off, I want to be very clear that I love hippie communes. So, <laughs> um, but there is a difference between a financial sharing commune, their structure and daily life, and co-housing. But it felt that headline felt very um, judgmental to me. And I feel like there are people who hear the word co-housing and and have these um, instant thoughts or thinking about, uh, Nathan, I think you talked about early on about living in college flophouse type things. Um, and and so people think co-housing and they, they think of some things that m- maybe weren't painted in the best of light. So that's definitely one of the challenges that I have is just explaining, yeah, no, my house looks no different than your house. It's just how I live in it and how I live in the community that's, that it's in and how my community functions in the larger neighborhood and in the city. Well, stigma, stigma is a significant issue with respect to mobile homes, manufactured housing, or worse, trailers. Uh, it doesn't keep me awake at night any longer. I'm so used to that after 30 years. But what does keep me awake at night uh, are community closures. Um, when a piece of property has a higher alternative use, higher and better use, if you will, the you know that property gets converted over time at some point in time, and. Uh, Unfortunately for mobile home parks, uh, the, you know a lot of them are in in threatened zones uh, for change of use, and because the homeowners haven't owned the land for you know uh, there's probably been a long term plan, a long term disinvestment in the infrastructure that goes along with a long term plan to convert the use to a different use, and so the worst phone calls I get are. Our community, we just got closure notices. Um, we're all being evicted. Can you help us buy it? And unless you're in a state where there are resources available to deal with the uh, overvaluation, right? The, the premium um, in the price, that's the difference between what it would sell at as a mobile home park ongoing versus the alternative use. And unless you're in a state with the resources are available to fix what have been years of disinvestment of the infrastructure more than likely, and sometimes the homes as well, 
then uh, the oper- the chance of structuring a successful resident purchase is um, virtually nil. Um, I say one percent of the closure cases, unless the unless the circumstances are just right, um, are, are uh, it's just an impossible purchase. We did. Uh, received one of those phone calls last fall in Salt Lake County, Utah, also a very hot housing market, 52 elderly homeowners that were at the risk of imminent displacement due to conversion of the property. Um, the property was sold to two developers. The, the, in the bro- sales brochure itself was, quote, strong interim cash flow with long-term uh, upside due to redevelopment. So it was very clear where this property was headed. But fortunately for the Applewood Estates homeowners, um, the state housing fund, as well as the city of Midvale itself, um, came together with $1.1 million of financing in addition to Rock USA Capital's $3.9 million of financing. And the two developers who purchased the community unknowingly, uh, unknowing uh, at the time that the homeowners actually had an interest in buying the community. We had attempted to structure a purchase with the seller unsuccessfully, uh, but the two developers came to the table and said, oh, we didn't realize you wanted to buy it. If you want to buy it, you know, if you can do it within the next six months, um, we'll sell it to to the homeowners. And we worked our tails off, and thanks to the state of Utah, um, uh, that we were able to pull that off in conjunction with the homeowner. So occasionally it's successful, but it takes having aligned resources that see the problem and are willing to step up in a timely fashion. Um, but but it's those phone calls where I have to give the really bad news that I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do that are just heartbreaking. Um, and those, um, those keep me up at night. Now, what do you think... Um you know, what, what opportunities do these kinds of models create that people don't see? I mean, for instance, I think of a, 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 a spokesperson, a kind of advocate for uh, some of our manufactured home communities in this, in this area who, uh, you know, when I mentioned this model said, you know, I don't know if I want to burden people with this, you know, with this extra responsibility. And people might say the same thing to, uh, uh, to the idea of co-housing, you know, I don't want to deal with that community around me, right? I don't want to deal with uh, uh, with with the the flack of having to manage all those relationships. Um, how how do those kinds of questions? What do those sound to you like? Do, does it sound like okay, maybe this isn't for everybody, or is there something that those kinds of concerns aren't aren't understanding? I would say, as far as community relationships. Um... I think that it's true. Community living in community like that is like like where I live is not for everybody. But it's very interesting because those people that live in the backwoods by themselves, that's actually like one percent of the population thrives like that. Most of the population thrives in some sort of community, but it can be at varying levels. Um, your participation is is self determined how you want to participate, how much you want to participate. And so I, I would just suggest to somebody that don't make assumptions, experience it, and and be open to what feels good to you will work great in a community. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I would also say, first off, that uh, somewhere around two-thirds of U.S.-owned housing stock 
operates or exists within some type of association. Uh, so most housing is already involved in association management of one sort or the other. And, you know, for homeowners that rent the land, buying it as a co-op is uh, their best solution for gaining control and security, which at the end of the day, ownership matters. And it just fundamentally matters. Um, so I'd say it, it does call on a significant, um, uh, it does call on people significantly to step up. So how we as an organization support the people stepping up, our local technical assistance provider affiliates stay in relationship with that co-op, uh, not just through the purchase, but for the entire length of their financing, but um, beyond that, because we're creating regional and uh, regional networks of co-ops uh, for peer education. So there are regional training events. Once there are a number of co-ops in this market, there'll be regional training events. We just had our National Leadership Institute at Southern New Hampshire University four weeks ago, where we bring people in from around the country, co-op leaders from around the country. We have an online community center for 24-7 training and peer networking. Um, the association holds monthly phone calls with co-op leaders. Uh, there is um, uh, no co-op is an island, and we want to support co-op leaders who are stepping up and leading their neighborhoods. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, it's a choice first, and two, um, you know, uh, it's how most people are living already. So that's. I think that point is so important. You know, Karen, early earlier you mentioned that headline of you know it's not just a hippie commune, right? You know, where where that's kind of like saying don't think of an elephant. Right. Uh, you know, the, the headline puts a certain image in people's minds and then and then sets itself sets itself itself up for failing to reverse that image. Right. Um, and I think so often with these kinds of models, we, uh, you know, we start with something that seems strange and utopian rather than starting with the ways in which forms of ownership and shared ownership and community are actually part of people's everyday life. Uh, and they work so well that we don't even think about them. No. Uh, you know, we don't think about the, uh, the the hardware store down the road that only exists because of a co-op. We don't think about the uh, the condominium communities that uh, uh, where people have figured out models for making kind of shared resources work and 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 these sorts of things. So it's it's a uh, uh, you know it's an interesting communication challenge that sometimes might be easier than we think. Uh, mm. And, uh, and I know I had a neighbor, you know, uh, uh, detached single family home ownership neighborhood, uh, had an, uh, a low income neighbor who had a failed septic system for years. And, um, and I said to my wife, you know, if they lived in a co-op, that septic system would have been fixed, uh, when it was first a problem. Um, instead, you know, there's now, um, wetlands created around their failed septic system because they just simply can't afford to replace it. But that's a because it's an individual responsibility as opposed to a community. Uh, so, but it's the same health and safety risk, believe me. Yeah. And and one of the themes at, at work here uh, is the question of class, right? I mean, we're we're talking about uh, forms of of housing that cross class lines. Class is a really hard thing to talk about in this country. Um, uh, and uh, you know, you've talked about that, uh, Paul, with the with the the uh, uh, the stigma that has uh, that is so much a part of the the world that you're working in um how can we create stronger cross cross class alliances among these different kinds of models 
uh, how can uh, uh, people who are doing shared ownership and shared housing in one kind of uh, 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 situation uh, be, be kind of a partner with those who are doing it in a different kind of situation? I think the first thing is to just acknowledge that, that there are a class, there, there are these classes that exist. And then beyond acknowledging it, figuring out if that's something that um, speaks to you, that's important to you, and if so, what what can you do? So for a co-housing community that is forming, what is important to them? Is it important to them that 50% of their units are uh, classified as affordable somehow, whether it's through Habitat for Humanity or some sort of city-subsidized program? Um, the people creating need to figure out kind of how important that is to them and then how to create that because you can. You just have to go through the process of figuring out how to do that. And I think you're contributing to the solution here because I think the solution is in us all recognizing that there's a much larger cooperative sector that um, exists around the world. And I think at this time of a tremendous wealth and income inequality, it's more important than ever that we look at cooperatives as a solution to that. Cooperatives fundamentally, but just by corporate structure, redistribute benefits differently than individually owned corporations or private corporations. And cooperatives have been successful in a variety of sectors. Uh, so people can go to cooperativesforabetterworld.coop, learn about co-ops, but we all, in co-housing and manufactured housing co-ops, food co-ops, where have you, we are all part of a cooperative sector that believes that we're all better off if, if the benefits of our work together benefit more people more broadly. That's what motivates me. I'm sure it's what motivates you, but I think it is programs like this, Nathan, that just raise up the profile of cooperatives and the diversity of cooperatives and the benefits of cooperation. Um, and I think if we look 20 and 30 years down the road, and I, I'm particularly impressed with uh, young people today that are seeing cooperative ownership as a just more just way to organize a market economy and uh, provide more benefits to more people because we surely need it. Great, and you, you mentioned Cooperatives for a Better World. Uh, our study circle and other uh, uh, Colorado organizations like the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union and Community Wealth Building Network have actually partnered with them, and, and we've uh, created a portal uh, uh, just for Colorado cooperatives uh, that you can now go to at colorado.coop, and that's a place where you can find a directory of uh, cooperatives across the state. And, uh, and uh, that's only the beginning. You know, we're really trying to step up our, our uh, statewide cooperation among these, among these sorts of businesses. So it's, a, it's an exciting moment. They've been a great partner. Great. So before we conclude, I just want to hear from each of you about how people who are excited by what you've been saying can get involved. Uh, for co-housing, uh, cohousing.org is our website, and you can find out about kind of some of the concepts and general characteristics of co-housing. Uh, we offer a conference or two a year somewhere in the U.S., and that's always a great place to learn a little bit more. Uh, we have a directory listing on our website, so there are 168 co-housing communities in the U.S., and there are 140 that are forming, and those are all listed on our directory. Um, many, many co-housing communities offer open houses uh, on some sort of regular schedule or um, 
or join a community for a community meal, which is a great way to just kind of understand the concept a little bit more. Well, I invite uh, anyone to, to uh, visit us online at rocusa.org. Um, and uh, for homeowners, you know, there's a map of all co-ops uh, that are part of our network uh, in terms of acquiring a home in a co-op. Uh, for homeowners in, in, in commercially uh, operated communities, uh, there's a, a homeowner page to learn about resident ownership. For community operators, community owners, there's a video with a community owner from uh, Montana who sold his community to the homeowners, uh, as well as other information for community owners, um, and then just general information and news about what's going on at Rock USA. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy, and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. Once again, I'm Nathan Schneider. I'm a, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. We're with you on the fourth Thursday of every month. And today we've been talking about uh, strategies for shared uh, ownership and, and community housing, uh, uh, enabling more uh, healthy, sustainable, and accessible uh, housing options across the country. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Karen Hoskin and uh, uh, Paul Bradley. Karen is executive director of the Co-Housing Association of the United States, and uh, Paul is president of Rock USA. There's a lot more coming up uh, from the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. As I mentioned, we're very excited about the launch of a new website, a platform, uh, a, a point of beginning uh, at colorado.coop. That's colorado.coop. Uh, it's a portal where you can uh, find cooperatives across the state. Uh, get to know the cooperatives around you. And uh, uh, again, it's the start of uh, a new uh, initiative uh, connecting co-ops uh, co across Colorado, helping them strengthen each other, uh, helping us uh, find each other and see each other. Um, we've got a few other uh, things coming up. Uh, we have openings, speaking of cooperative housing, at Queen City Cooperative in Denver, which you can find on Facebook if you search for Queen City Cooperative. Uh, and also the Boulder Housing Coalition. Uh, boulderhousingcoalition.org has more information about those openings. So if you're looking to live in cooperative housing, uh, uh, there are some opportunities for that. Uh, this coming September, uh, there are going to be a few events uh, for my new book, uh, which is about the cooperative tradition. It's called Everything for Everyone, the Radical Tradition that is Shaping the Next Economy. And uh, we have events uh, on, uh, I believe it's November 12th and November 14th. November 12th is at uh, Boulder Bookstore in Boulder, and uh, November 4th, or I'm sorry, September 12th and September 14th. Uh, September 12th is Boulder Bookstore, and September 14th is uh, Book Bar in Denver, uh, both great places. And you can uh, learn more about that at my website, nathanschneider.info. Uh, finally, on November 7th, uh, we'll be uh, hosting a Colorado Shared Ownership Summit at CU Boulder. Um, and you can find details at coloradocoops.info. Uh, this is a really ambitious, uh, exciting event in partnership with Cooperatives for a Better World uh, uh, out of New Hampshire as well, uh, just like Paul. And uh, uh, it, it's a chance to bring cooperatives from across the state together. Uh, that includes also credit unions and uh, employee-owned uh, companies. 
uh, helping them learn from each other, learn lessons, and develop some strategies together about how uh, we can strengthen the, the uh, ecosystem and, and uh, business uh, environment for all of us. Um, again, you can find out more about the uh, about all these things and the uh, and the Colorado Co-op Study Circle at coloradocoops.info. Thank you so much for joining us.